Paul says, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. And we have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast. That's so good, I think I should read it again. God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning and zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. And Father, we ask as we continue now in this time of worship by opening the word of God and looking to you, Lord, as our living God to speak to us a living word this day. Lord, we pray your spirit would be the one who is teaching us and instructing us the one who would communicate to us that which we need to hear and that we'd have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular portion of your word. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening and we want to hear your voice and we ask this expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, I know this could be a long shot, but is it possible this morning that you could potentially be feeling a little bit down today, that even though you are in church this morning, you may be feeling down, or maybe even you felt just a little down recently in your life, maybe in the past week or month or season of your life, and if not, I would ask this, have you noticed around you that people that you work with, your friends, your family members, maybe fellow classmates, maybe those who you just interact with, have you noticed that there are people around you that seem from time to time to kind of be feeling down, to seem a little discouraged, maybe even depressed? Look, whether it's enduring various types of hardships that we are all exposed to in our journey through our time on this earth, whether it's the hurts and disappointments and the struggles and the heartbreak that come from relationships with people, whether it is perhaps the pressures that we're under or the fears and worries we have over things that then make us wrestle mentally and emotionally, or whether it's even just navigating the holidays, which, as I said, due to perhaps maybe loss or separation of a loved one or loneliness or difficulties can be a very difficult time in people's lives. And look, let me say this morning, it is a very real as well as very human thing to have periodic bouts with discouragement, with depression, with feeling low, <clears throat> where our mental and emotional mood is brought down a few notches, maybe even brought down tremendously where we feel like we're maybe even almost stuck under a dark cloud. And look, the wonderful news this morning is the very God who created us 
who knows us and understands the complex bodies that we have, body, soul, mind, and spirit, and all these things working in conjunction, the one who knows us best and loves us greatly is able to intervene in those times when we are feeling low, when we are perhaps discouraged, or as the Bible says here, downcast. We read in our text that God is the one who can help us who can lift up our head once again, perhaps, when we're dragging our head down. Our God comforts the downcast, he helps the depressed, he lifts up the lowly, and he encourages the discouraged. And this is what our text this morning is revealing to us, particularly in really many places in the scripture allude to as well. Now, as we kind of transition into these verses this morning, remember the backdrop, Paul who planted, who pastored, who ministered to the church at Corinth, it would be an understatement to say that he had a little bit of a challenging relationship with them nonetheless, that because of the things that were going on there in Corinth due to some immaturity among the congregation, some sinful behavior, things that we've looked at and learned in 1 Corinthians as well as in 2 Corinthians, due to some of those things, there were some real ups and downs in the relationship between Paul and the congregants there at Corinth. And like a loving parent who just wants what's best for their kids, even if their kids start to veer off track a little bit and begin to go in a wrong direction, Paul has tried to lovingly in a kind of a a parental way to, to teach, to correct, to try and offer counsel and guidance, to kind of steer them back onto God's path for their best. And from time to time, that's caused relational tension. And it's caused challenges among them in their relationship. Yet Paul's loved them through it all. In fact, in the very last section we looked at together last week, in the end of chapter 6, in the first verse of chapter 7, Paul was speaking to them, we saw about hindrances in their spiritual lives. And Paul was particularly conveying to them his concern that they would not let things hold them back from their spiritual health, or not let anything, or even for that matter, anyone, even relationships, to hinder them from God's best or from spiritual growth or spiritual health and fruitfulness. And and his call, as God's Spirit was leading him, was for them to separate themselves, to find some way to make a disconnect from anything that was holding them back spiritually or even any relationship or partnership or person that was interfering with their spiritual health or their spiritual progress, that when the Holy Spirit identified such things, whether it was in their attitudes or their behaviors, that they would respond to that rightly and rid themselves. Paul said, chapter 7, verse 1, cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, that is, sinful behaviors, as well as sinful things of the spirit, even just attitudes of our hearts and things that can begin to hinder and disrupt our relationship with God. And though some in the congregation truly needed to still address certain sinful and unhealthy things going on in their lives that were hindering them, and that was why Paul addressed those things that we saw last time, the good news is that there were many others in the church in Corinth who at one time were struggling and had already responded to the Holy Spirit's plea through Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians. And there were many in the church who at one time were off track, and by this point, they've gotten themselves back on track, and they were doing very well. 
And Paul rejoiced over that. Though some still needed to address things, there were many who had already addressed those things. They had repented. They were back on track with God. And as a result of that, Paul was rejoicing over that. He was celebrating over that change and that turn back to God. That's what he's alluding to, we'll see now, in the remainder of chapter 7, which we'll see in our next two studies together. So look with me, if you would, in verse 2. With that backdrop, Paul says to them, verse 2, open your hearts to us, for we have wronged no one. We have corrupted, the idea is polluted or defiled no one there, and we've cheated, not cheated or robbed anyone. So Paul noticed, verse 2, we might say, is asking for their receptivity towards him as well as to the ministry team that he was serving together with, because as verse 2 says, he honestly saw no just basis for them closing him off relationally, or we might say giving him kind of the stiff arm relationally. Paul addresses here in verse two, listen, your receptivity towards us relationally is very important for our long-term relationship. And so Paul says in verse two there, please, he says, open your hearts, he says, towards us. The idea is please stay open and receptive relationally. Please don't close us off. He's saying, please, don't don't shut us out and take away access to what's going on in your life or our relationship being healthy and unified. Paul understood, apparently, that this is a common temptation in human hearts, that there are times when we can become hard in our heart, and the human heart has both the capacity to, and let's just be very candid, the tendency to become hard when it should remain soft and receptive, and then we begin relationally to put walls up in our life, to close people out, to become unreceptive. And because of our sinful struggles with our own selfishness and the pride that can be in our hearts, our hearts can harden. And instead of being open and receptive relationally, which is best for us, we can begin to shut people out to close people off, restrict access, put up walls, put up barriers, and we kind of lock others out from access to our lives relationally. And Paul, understanding this, says here, look, this is not good. A heart that is closed off, that shuts others out, that's never a wise or a healthy thing in two ways. If we make the mistake of shutting off God or shutting off our heart to God, people can have a hard heart towards God. The word of God is very clear in regards to that. And when we harden our heart towards God in any way or shut God out from connecting and working in our heart, that is a great disservice and a hindrance to our own spiritual lives, to our own benefit as people because God wants what's best for us. And in the same way, harden heart towards other people. When we close a person off or we shut people out and we begin to restrict access to other people, that is what has caused great damage and hurt and ruin to relationships continually through human history. When people harden their hearts towards one another, when they shut people out of their lives, that only harms and ruins relationships. And I'll tell you this, it only harms and ruins us if we're the one hardening our heart or shutting people out of our lives. It only damages us because we are intended to be relational creatures. It's the way God's designed us. Isolation is just the devil's playground. That's all it is. Proverbs 18 says, he who isolates himself, notice, we choose to do that, isolates himself, 
he says, seeks his own harm and rages against all wise judgment. That doesn't sound like anything good comes when we isolate ourselves. God's designed us to be relational for many, many different reasons we could allude to. But we can make that mistake because of our own human tendencies at times to begin to, again, be prone to shutting people out or not being receptive. And Paul, sensing their heart, may be a little prone to closing him off or shutting him out because of maybe a little bit of the tension. He's been kind of saying some hard things to them, and they've had some ups and downs relationally as he's been trying to help them. He begs them here in love and really spiritual maturity and wisdom. He's saying, please, don't shut us out here. Don't, don't, don't become unreceptive. He's saying, please, I'm asking if you would, if anything, he says, open your heart towards us. Remain open. Or perhaps he's saying, for those of you who've already closed us off, would you please open your heart once again? Would you please reopen your heart to us? And then he even mentions reasons specifically why they should remain open. In essence, what Paul says in verse 2 is, I really can't find a just basis for you to logically shut us out of your life. Now, I find this interesting. It's almost as if Paul, to kind of help them, gives them some evidence. Look, I mean, he mentions three things. He says, verse 2, we've wronged no one. In other words, what Paul's saying is, if you were to be honest with yourself, he's saying, if you would just take a good look, he said, we've truly never wronged you. There may have been misunderstandings between us. But Paul says, we've never blatantly wronged you or hurt you or harmed you purposely. So that's not a just basis. If you want to use that as a standard, why you would shut us off. We've never purposely hurt you. We've never consciously tried to wrong you. He then says as well in verse two, and we've corrupted no one. In other words, he says, we didn't do anything to harmfully defile or ruin our relationship. We didn't purposely try and poison the relationship. Yes, things have happened, We're human beings, right? That's why the Bible says iron sharpens iron. Last I checked, you sharp two pieces of iron, they're sparks. But then why is there sparks in our relationship? Because you're living together. You're dwelling together. You're interacting with people. It's a part of relationship dynamic. That's actually sometimes what sharpens us and deepens us in relationships and bonds. But instead, we allow it to be the spark that causes a forest fire. And to have a completely opposite effect. And we let it pollute and poison our relationships. And Paul says, look, we haven't purposely poisoned any of you there. We didn't intentionally try and corrupt the relationship we have. And he says, and we've cheated no one. The idea there of cheat means to exploit or take advantage of someone. To steal from them. To do something where you kind of take from them something with ill intent. So Paul basically in verse 2 is building a case to say, look, I don't really see a just basis for you to not be receptive to us. He says, so I'm asking you, don't let emotional confusion make you shut us out. I don't even find a just basis for you to to shut us out or to close us off. Now, let me say in connection to that, by way of application, there may be at times, as Paul alludes to those three examples, there may be at times that things like what Paul used as evidence actually do happen in relationships, right? Those Those things sometimes do take place. People do those things to us, or maybe we've done wrong things to others. And there are going to be times, no doubt Paul understanding human relationships, that's why he picks those examples, though it did not happen between Paul and them. Paul, no doubt, recognized that these are some of the things that cause struggles to relationships. And look, maybe someone has truly in your life wronged you. Maybe someone has taken advantage of you, ruined something, done something harmful to you. Or maybe, honestly, maybe you've wronged someone. 
Maybe there are some things that you have done in all honesty that have corrupted a relationship or caused hurt or harm to a relationship. And in such cases, it is completely understandable that hearts are going to struggle. That's where that propensity is going to be to want to shut people out of our lives. And hearts then have to struggle through a process. But let me just say, healing is still always the best solution. Forgiveness and healing and reconciliation is still always the highest ideal. And I cannot find a place in the word of God where God does not esteem healing, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And how a softened heart is always still not better than letting your heart become cold and dead as a stone. So at the end of the day, whether it's wrongs and hurts that have been done to me or errors and mistakes I've made relationally where I've wronged or hurt or done something to someone else, and maybe then the struggle starts to happen with receptivity and shutting out and closing off. At the end of the day, keeping a soft heart, asking God for a sensitive spirit and that we would not become hardened in our hearts, that always is what's gonna serve us best and it's always what's gonna be best for the person on the other side of the relationship. So Paul says here in verse three to them, I don't say this, he says, notice, to condemn. I'm not trying to be harsh or condemning for I've said before that you are in our hearts. In other words, Paul's saying my my hearts remained open to die together and to live together. So Paul in verse three here seeks to, if you might say, clarify to avoid further misunderstanding. And then in the second half of verse three, it seems to me that he's trying to reinforce his commitment to them relationally. Now, again, this is just wise relationship dynamics. First of all, in verse three, we see Paul clarifying his heart and his intentions so that the devil doesn't manipulate more further misunderstanding. Paul says in verse three, after he's just said the things he said recently, look, I'm not saying these things that I've been saying to you in my communication to be condemnatory. I'm not trying to be harsh or cruel or browbeat you. He says, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just trying to reason with you logically. And I like how Paul here, he's trying to clarify this. He's saying, look, please consider the value of our relationship and don't let mental and emotional confusion and misunderstanding or perceived ideas of what he meant by when he said that or what the intention was behind those statements. He says, look, don't let that happen. He says, I promise you, I'm not trying to be condemnatory and harsh here. don't, Don't let that make you disregard the value of a relationship. And then he goes on to say in verse three, I've said before, and he says, I want to remind you that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. Now, to me, there you see Paul reinforcing his love and devotion to them. He's saying, I love you so much. In fact, I am so committed to you. He says, I am so committed to you. Honestly, I'm devoted to you in life or death. One translation of verse three renders it this way. You hold such a place in our hearts that we would live or die together with you. In other words, what Paul's conveying there in verse two is he's saying, no matter what we go through relationally, no matter what we've been through, no matter what we have to endure through, whatever sacrifices it requires, Paul's saying, we are so committed to you, whether in life or in death, we're committed. Isn't it interesting, you know, in marriage relationships, we bring people before a whole bunch of others, and now we even use video, so there's all kinds of evidence. (laughs) And because you cannot wait to get to the honeymoon, you'll say anything I ask you to repeat if I'm marrying a couple. And we say things 
we say things like, for better, now I'm going to check your memory here, and for Come on. Worse? How could this possibly get worse? We're in love. How could this pop? But for better and if it gets worse. In sickness and in health. Richer. Man, we're doing good financially. We're getting along. For poor? You spent all our money? You lost your job? We're struggling financially, and that causes a lot of pressure on marriages and families, right? And then we even go so far as to say, here's the big gipper, till death do us part. That sounds like a long-term commitment. It sounds like an understanding that there's going to be hills and valleys and hills and valleys and hills and valleys, and it's not all plateaus, but no matter what, you know, my wife and I have this sign. We got it years ago. We always purposely keep it hanging somewhere prominent in our bedroom. It, it says forever, for always, no matter what. Just a great reminder to walk by that a few times a day. Forever, for always, no matter what. And you can almost sense that kind of love that Paul's trying to express. Here. He says, we are with you. You are in our hearts. He says to die together and to live together. In essence, you can hear Paul saying, look, I am willing to live with you even if it's hard, and I'm also willing to stay committed to you, brothers and sisters there in Corinth. He says, even if it kills me. <laughs> even if this relationship kills me. I'm in it, life or death. I'll live through it if it's hard, and even if it kills me and puts me to my end. Now, I don't know about you, but what a serious declaration of devotion and an expression of love and commitment. Can you just imagine how powerful that came across to the Corinthians as they heard that? I mean, that must have been incredibly reinforcing to their relationship to hear that, that Paul apparently understood the value of reinforcing love, of reinforcing commitment and devotion, that that has great power and value in relationships, and particularly in challenging times. And look, may we learn from this and live it out in all of our relationships, our marriages, our friendships, the relationships we have with brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would understand the value of periodically, not just clarifying things, but even just reinforcing with our own words and the things we do to reinforce commitment, to reinforce devotion and dedication. Paul saw the value of that very thing. Now, verse four, he goes on to say to them, I acknowledge, I admit, he says, great is my boldness of speech. So Paul's admitting once again there in verse 4 that he has been very direct in some of the things that he's spoken, that he hasn't minced words, that there are some times as we've been reading, Paul's been very candid and direct speaking about what was going on in their lives. Yet in love, he's again wanting to remind them here that though he may have boldly challenged them on some issues in their life, that it was never with any ill intent in fact, it was the exact opposite. It was his great love and devotion to them for long-term commitment, which was why at times he became very bold and challenged them very strongly because that's what love does. We talked a little bit about that last time. Paul said, I freely admit, there's been times I've used some pretty strong language towards you. But he says, that was never to be harmful or to even be hurtful. I was trying to spare you and redirect you from steering off the cliff. 
And right, that's what love honestly does. True love, if it sees someone veering off course towards a deadly cliff, would be willing to, to say something, to speak up. And so Paul says, look, I admit it was never with ill intent, but yes, I've been very bold in my speech towards you sometimes, but that was a demonstration of my love. However, Paul then indicates the balanced side of love, because look what he goes on to say. But he says, also, just like I've spoken boldly to you and towards you, he says, I want you to know I also am so proud at times I'm boasting about you. Because he says, great is my boasting on your behalf as well. I'm filled with comfort and exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulations. So Paul indicates there he also had been speaking very proudly and in a complimentary way about the Christians at Corinth. And Paul wanted them to know that. He says, yes, there are times I had to challenge you. He said, but I want to be very real. He said, I also have found times where because I've been so proud of some of you there at Corinth who've rightly responded to my spiritual rebuke or my guidance in my first letter, that when you were off track, that, that, that you heard the spirit of God speak to you and you chose to be obedient and responsive and turn away from error and turn back and make things right with God. And he says, you know what? Like a proud parent, he says, you're one of my favorite stories to tell people there, Corinth. And there are times I'm boasting about you to other congregations saying, look, let me tell you about some of, the, there were some folks at Corinth, they were into some really carnal stuff. I mean, they had really gotten off track. And yet I wrote my first letter to them. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them, they responded rightly and they, they turned the ship back around and they got back on the right course of following the Lord. And that blessed Paul's heart. And he says, you guys give me great reason to boast about what you've done in your response, some of you there. And he wanted them to hear this. It's almost as if you can hear him saying, look, let me tell you, you're one of my greatest stories of repentance and restoration that I get to tell people. And I like this here because Paul here is in a sense telling them in 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 an indirect way, I'm so proud of some of you there. I actually boast about you like a father who's just so proud of his children. And, you know, it is a good and a wise thing to also remind and tell people from time to time how proud we are of them. It comes very easy to tell people when we're frustrated with them or times to be critical towards them, but there's something good and wise at times to tell people that we also from time to time are proud of them when they're doing what's right or maybe when they've once were doing what is wrong, but they're making an effort and there's some good changes and maybe they're doing better in time past and to reinforce to them, you know what, I just want to let you know I'm really proud of you. I'm proud of the progress or the changes. You know, that's the kind of stuff that that fuels the fire of people to keep going in a right direction. And so Paul here says, look, I want to be honest. I've been bold, but I want you to know I'm so proud of you. I boast about you there in Corinth as well. And this is what brought him great joy. That's what he's saying in verse four. This has comforted me. It's made me exceedingly joyful to hear of how good some of you are now doing. Amidst, notice he says, verse four, amidst all of our tribulation. Now, notice, Paul here alludes to all our troubles. Now, though Paul, as well as his ministry team, they loved the Lord, they walked with Jesus, they were doing God's work, yet take notice in the word of God that none of them were free, apparently, from hardships or troubles or difficulties, because Paul says here in verse 3, all of our troubles. Jesus in John 16 made us a Bible promise. It's in none of the Bible promise books, and it's probably not even underlined in most of your Bibles. 
But he said, in this world, you will have tribulation, crushing trials is literally the word. But take heart, he said, I've overcome the world. And and one day, if you're with me, we're going to overcome this world because I'm going to get you out of this world. But while you're in it, he says, it's a promise. You will have tribulation. In other words, it is a part of the human journey on this earth, whether you serve God perfectly and faithfully or not, to have some varying degree of personal hardships and difficulties in measure from time to time. And Paul alludes to those experiences being very transparent, as you can tell, as he goes on in his communication. He's just mentioned all our troubles, but he says, okay, let me just be candid what they, some of them were like, but I also want you to know how God helped in the midst of the troubles. Look what he says in verse 5 going on. He says, for indeed, when we came to Macedonia, to that region, our bodies had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not just by his coming, but also the consolation, the encouragement with which he comforted us in you when he told us about, notice your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul here describes some of what he went through in the stormy seas in that time when he was in the region of Macedonia. And just let's just see, I know you're going to have to use your imagination cap this morning. Let's just see if somehow we could possibly relate to some of the human struggles that Paul particularly mentions in verse 5. He says, during our time there in Macedonia, Paul says, let's see if I can recall. Let's see, there, there was literal exhaustion. There were challenges and difficulties in complicating things every terror I was turning. It seemed like there were ongoing battle after battle and agitation. And then on top of that, then the anxiety started coming within. Then the fears and the worries and the concerns. And Paul just begins to describe here. He says, verse 5, our bodies, when we were in that area, he said, our physical bodies, they had no rest. Paul's saying it was a season in our life when we were going so hard, we just weren't getting as much rest as we probably needed. And we just found ourselves worn out and exhausted and we hadn't been able to get adequate rest and we were tired and weary and we were struggling physically to keep up. And then that starts wearing on you mentally due to extra work and lack of rest. This describes what we often refer to as saying, I am just exhausted. And that's what Paul's saying. We were in that season because of the pace we were keeping and the things we were managing and the, 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 the rate we were running at. He says, in that season, in our circumstances and what we're going, we just were not getting enough rest and we were exhausted. We were just weary and worn down. Ever been there before? Where you just say, man, that season... <laughs> It is just taking the life out of me. I just, I just feel like no matter even know how much I sleep, I still can't get rested enough. And Paul says, we were just exhausted in that season. Well, if that weren't enough, Paul says also, we were, he then says, look what he goes on, verse 5 in his list, we were troubled on every side. He says, no matter which way we turned, we kept encountering problems. We went north, there was problems. Let's try going south. There's another problem. Let's try east. Oh, that seems complicated too. How about west? That's even worse. And Paul said, no matter which way we turned on every side, it was like just one problem 
after the next. It was like compounding complications. It wasn't just hard in one area, Paul's saying, of life. It seemed like it was hard in every arena of life. And Paul's saying on every side, it just seemed like it was a difficult time constantly in every arena of our life. Again, try to imagine. Could you relate? Literally exhausted, complicated in every arena. And then Paul goes on to say there was also these ongoing battles and being agitated. He says, going on, verse 5, outside were conflicts. That's a word that speaks of of struggling and battling in warfare. So in essence, what Paul is trying to convey there is in our circumstantial situation during that time, it just seemed like one battle after another. We just get out of and survive that battle, and we turn around, and the next thing you know, here comes another attack. Here comes the next battle. Here comes the next challenge, the next struggle, battle after battle, first this, then battling that. And it was a season where he kept having to fight through things, situationally, circumstantial difficulty. And sometimes we go through seasons like this where it's just like constant conflict, right? Where it's not just one area. It's like, man, we just got done that battle. <laughs> but but it's, it's almost like, like, like a war for a season. And wars are made up of what? Continuous ongoing battles. Thankfully, no war does last forever, and your war won't last forever either. But sometimes we go through seasons where it's like it just feels like I'm in the midst of World War III here, where it is just battle after battle after battle. There's a battle over there, and then we just, okay, let's regroup. And then, oh, great, another battle. Someone's attacking us again. And, and it's just like battle after battle. And we find ourselves constantly, it's like I just feel like a soldier in constant combat. And then if that were not enough, Verse 5, the last thing he mentions, the fourth thing, he says, outside were conflicts, but then he said, then inside started the fears. In other words, Paul says, then the struggle became the anxiety. Then fear on the inside started bullying us and making us feel intimidated in our emotions and in our minds, and we started wrestling with concerns inside, and worry started coming upon our hearts, and we found ourselves with a level of anxiety increasing within us, and we started getting fearful. Oh my goodness, what if this and what if that? And again, because of the weight and the pressure and this and that and all the struggles, he says, then it started becoming a battle on the inside. And the emotions were starting to get the best of us and emotions and feelings. And I'll tell you, mental fears, those can be debilitating. Those can be things that begin to have an effect upon a person where fear can completely cripple a person. It can completely hold someone back and hinder them and and paralyze them. And Paul says, this is what was happening. It wasn't just it was hard circumstantially. He said, then it started getting hard mentally and emotionally. And we were battling all these fears and anxieties. And can you imagine, again, the cumulative effect of all this? That's what Paul is trying to describe. It was just the cumulative effect of all these things. It was during a season that things were really, really hard. He says, we were so busy, we weren't getting enough rest and the troubles and the conflicts, and it was one battle after another, and then we started getting stressed and fearful. And as a result of that, look what Paul says in verse six, as a result of that, circle that word, he says, this thing happened where we got downcast. Downcast. He says, we honestly started getting pretty discouraged. We started feeling pretty low, almost somewhat, you might say, depressed. And can I just venture to say, I think that's fairly understandable if you add up the list in verse 5. If you add up the list of what Paul's saying in verse 5, 
and take it into a reality of a season that he was going through, when that's weighing down a person in a season of life, that's going to make somebody start to feel downcast, depressed, discouraged, in despair. And perhaps you can relate today. Maybe the cumulative effect of life's hardships and struggles has started to take a toll upon you mentally and emotionally to where as a result of things like in your life in verse five, you can say, you know, I, I do. I feel like just like I just feel so downcast. I find myself struggling with getting low and being discouraged. I assure you, listen, I assure you lots of people even around you in this room this morning have felt or are feeling downcast, have battled with feeling discouraged, low, depressed. It's called being human. It's called journeying through earth. It has nothing to do with a lack of faith or a lack of prayer or that you're not a spiritual superhero like Paul. Aren't you glad that next to Jesus we look at Paul and say, man, that guy's like a spiritual superhero. And Paul says, okay, let me pull back the cape. <laughs> we were pretty downcast, man. He said in the beginning of the book, we were despairing of life sometimes. We were saying, I don't even know if we're going to survive this. I mean, Paul's just so honest, just so raw in regards to the struggles. That word downcast that's used there is actually a biblical term drawn from a shepherding analogy. A downcast referred to a sheep that was stuck on its back. And sheep are so weak and vulnerable, and because of their physical limitations on top of the fact that they're not always the smartest animals in regard to certain things, sometimes they will roll over onto their back, and because they've gotten so fluffy and so fat, if they're being actually shepherded well, they roll over onto their back, and they get stuck on their backs. And their feet just go like this in the air, and that's called a cast-down sheep or a downcast sheep. When that sheep is stuck on its back, it life starts ebbing away. It will die in that condition if its shepherd doesn't intervene and turn it right side back up. It's, it's cast down. Sheep die in that position all the time. The idea is it is on its back in a vulnerable condition, and it does not know how, and it does not have the capacity to flip itself back over and get itself back on its feet. And the Bible uses that analogy to speak of how the shepherd must come to its rescue to picture what happens to our souls, that we're like weak and vulnerable sheep, all of us in our lives, and events transpire in our lives on earth like Paul describes here, and we end up being cast down. You know, Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Psalms right now. Psalm 42 repeatedly speaks, why are you cast down, O my soul? Again, indicating that this is a recurring thing that we go through. We've seen all through our study in the book of Psalms, these all these honest expressions of all the range of human emotions. You know, if nothing else, the book of Psalms just makes us feel so normal on Wednesday nights. We just walk, oh, I'm normal. So normal. Because these psalmists, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I mean, they express all these range of emotions and experience from excitement about God and love for God and enthusiasm about God to then anger and confusion and doubt and hurt and sadness, and grief, and heartbreak, and anxiety, and worry, and fears, and discouragement, and depression. One of my favorite phrases from the book of Psalms, we're at our wit's end. Oh, that wasn't a snappy phrase from some American. That's in the Bible. We're at our wit's end. We just saw this past Wednesday night, Psalm 94. 
said, in the multitude of my anxieties within me, not I'm anxious a little bit about something, in the multitude of my anxieties within me, being overwhelmed with fears and anxiety. And it helps us to see that it is natural and normal for the human soul at times to feel lowly, to be downcast. But look, here's the key. We can't overcompensate when those times happen. We can't overreact when those times happen. We see it as totally human, totally normal. We see it all through the book of Psalms, throughout the word of God. We don't want to properly or improperly respond to that and take it to an extreme that we shouldn't. I feel so low. I feel discouraged. I feel depressed. I feel really, really depressed. Instead, we see in the book of Psalms and all throughout the scripture, instead, we have to navigate through that properly and not be crippled and overcome by those natural human feelings and struggles that we all go through. Instead, as we've been seeing in the book of Psalms, what we do need to do is when we feel downcast, that's when we need to look to God. That's when we need to focus on God. That's when we need to, as we've said, we need to worship our way through the wilderness. How do you get through the wilderness? You just worship your way through the wilderness. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. How do you process the pain? You pray your way through the pain. You find God's coping mechanisms as an all-sufficient God to help you to process the pain, the hardships, the range of emotions, the feelings. You look to God, you focus on God, and, and you realize that's the answer ultimately. I need God's help. I'm cast down. I need my good shepherd here. I need him to intervene, and you let his truth realign your mind and help your thoughts come back into perspective. Look, the point is that Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, current saints right now, we all, to a degree, go through these experiences. Paul is alluding to this, but yet it's in these hard and low times where we experience, many times, the stage for the greatness of God if we participate in the process by turning to God and not shutting out God because it's hard. And though we may not understand, not shutting out God, not shutting out God's people, not shutting out the ministry of God, but saying if there's ever been a time that I really need to open up to God, I need God because I'm cast down here. And he's the only one that's going to get me back on my feet. He's the only one that's going to help me process this. Paul says, yes, we were discouraged, depressed. But he says, verse 6, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast. God who comforts the downcast. That word comforts that Paul uses there is that same Greek word Jesus used to refer the Paracletus to the helper of the Holy Spirit. So when he says God who comforts the downcast, the term there literally can be God who becomes the helper, who comes alongside those who are downcast to assist them in those difficult times. That this is what God is drawn to do. Despite what's happening, God can supernaturally comfort the downcast soul. That's a part of his nature. You know, this phrase, I could not get away from it all week long. Just the beauty of that statement Man, if you want to memorize a portion of a Bible verse, there's a few phrases. Don't even go for the whole verse. God who comforts the downcast. Take a walk with that. Let that sink in. Let that be rooted like an anchor in your mind 
We may feel discouraged mentally. We may struggle emotionally, but God wants to compassionately and has the power as well to comfort, to help, to assist when we're low, when we're downcast. He has the power to ways to comfort us. Psalm 94 again says this, the psalmist cried out, I am slipping. I'm slipping, Lord. But your unfailing love, O Lord, is what supported me. When doubts filled my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope. Honesty, but you got to be fully honest. But Lord, no matter how bad it was for me, you supernaturally were able to still help me. You were able to intervene because you're a God who can do the impossible. And God, through the supernatural ministry of his spirit in our heart and soul and mind, can comfort us can comfort those struggling to lift up those who are down, to be the lifter of our heads. Like a great physician, God not only can diagnose our soul, but God is able to prescribe exactly what our soul needs in those times and through his spirit's ministry to help us through those times. And he does that in so many different ways. I mean, it can be through the avenue, as I said, of worship and praise and prayer. The Bible says God can take away a spirit of heaviness, by giving us a garment of praise instead. The Bible says times of refreshing come from spending time in the presence of the Lord. God can comfort our soul and help us when we're down through his word and the truths of God's word, which are more powerful than any thoughts that go through my brain or any voices that are being spoken into my life. And the voice of God's truth is able to help us. You know, we see this in Psalm 19, Psalm 119. It speaks of the word of God, which converts the soul. That is, it changes the condition of the inner person. It can convert you from depressed to being able to get out of that to being joyful once again. God's word has the power to rejoice the heart, to comfort, to enlighten us in the darkness. It becomes our comforter and assures our heart of good things. And those are just a few of the benefits the Bible speaks of the word of God's value and truth. So God can find many ways to comfort us, but one of the ways God at times will use through the ministry of his spirit to comfort us is actually through loving people he brings across our path. If we don't shut people out, because look what Paul alludes to, God who comforts us, how? By the coming of Titus. God brought a visitor, a friend, a brother in the Lord. And not only by his coming, but then the consolation, the report he gave us, he says, when he told us of how great you were doing there in Corinth in your response. Titus, who served with Paul as an assistant, finally connects with Paul in Macedonia. And Paul says, during that time, it was like a divine appointment, man. Because in Macedonia, we were super bummed. We were super low. And he said, the right time. I couldn't figure out, man, where was Titus before? And it's almost as if God had a, well, can you say trump card nowadays from the pulpit? But I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> My humor is never planned, as you can tell. It was like the right time. God said, now, now Titus needs to visit. Right now. And he says, and Titus showed up there in Macedonia and we spent time together in his presence and the things that he said and our conversation. And he says, it just, it's what God used to lift our spirit out of being discouraged and downcast 
and he just began to, by his presence, not only minister to us, but Paul said also it was the good report that he shared with us. It wasn't just his presence. Paul said, we have been waiting to meet with Titus, because why? Because Paul was waiting for Titus to come back with report from guess where? Corinth. How did they respond to that first letter I wrote, Titus? That was pretty sharp. Can you go check for me? <laughs> and Paul says, and when he came back, he alludes to in verse 7, and we'll see more of this next week as Paul describes or, you know, th- their repentance in the verses ahead of us. But Paul says, he told us about your earnest desire that you were really serious about making things right. And he said, and he told us about your mourning, that is that you were really sad and truly sorry and regretful for the wrong things you did and how it caused conflict between us relationally and of your zeal for me that they actually were excited to see Paul again because they wanted to make things right. And Paul says, man, when I heard Titus tell me this great news, he says, man, it was like refreshment to my soul. And he's going to talk about that repentance to a greater degree. We'll see next time. Proverbs 25, 25 says, good news from a far country is like refreshing water to a soul. Isaiah chapter 50 says, the Lord's given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. That's technically a prophecy of Jesus. But listen, if the spirit of Jesus lives inside of you and me, I would venture to say that he'd still like to use your voice, your heart, your mind, and your mouth to keep doing the same thing. To know how to speak, not just what to speak, but to know how to speak a word in season. Maybe to someone who is weary. Now, here's the thing to me that is the most incredible of all. Think about this. Titus was not Paul's pastor. It's actually the opposite. Paul was actually Titus's pastor. Titus was a protege and an assistant in ministry. And yet God used Titus by the Spirit to encourage Paul and his team during that time. That is an incredible reminder for all of us this morning. God can use any servant to minister to people on his behalf, comfort, encouragement, to lift them up, to build them up. If we are all servants of Jesus and the Bible that we read says God comforts the downcast, I don't have to wonder if I see somebody downcast, does God want me to try and help them? Because if God comforts the downcast as his children with his spirit living within us, we can know clearly That's the kind of thing God wants to do. It's the kind of thing that God wants to use you and me to do, to look for opportunities. And that's always important because, can I say again this morning, that need, it'll always exist. There's always people around us depressed, downcast, discouraged, and feeling low. I'll tell you this, at holiday time, it's cranked up a little bit more. There's even more people who are downcast and struggling and and low and dealing with things, and it's a very hard time for them. And perhaps this week, folks, perhaps this week, God can use you to be the Titus in someone else's life. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. If God's bringing a person to your mind, if God brings someone across your path, that God may use you, whether it's in a visit to them or a call to them or a conversation or, if nothing else, a text to them, to be the tightest in someone else's life, to let God comfort that person through you. God's looking to do such. And perhaps today you are the one who is downcast. Let me say to you this morning, it happens to everybody. Don't overthink it. It happens to everybody. But most importantly, 
when it gets heavy and it gets hard and that dark cloud mentally and emotionally settles in, don't let it be something you get stuck in forever. Let God help. God wants to help. God can help by his spirit. And Paul humbly describes his hardship. And then he says, but God, who came in and comforted me. You know, I love Romans 15. It declares this, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I just don't know how I could ever find hope again, supernaturally, supernaturally by a God who can do that. Let's stand together.